Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the History Today podcast. This article is from the September issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. The Enemies Within A terrorist attack on Wall Street a century ago aroused suspicion of anarchists, socialists and foreigners as America saw danger around every corner. By James Crossland Read by Greg Johnson. The horse-drawn wagon trundled through the middle of Manhattan. The driver, faceless among the hundreds of bankers, porters and clerks who were enjoying their lunch break in the brave autumn sun, brought the vehicle to a stop at the corner of Wall and Broad Streets, a junction dominated by the headquarters of J.P. Morgan, one of the most powerful banks on earth. The driver leapt from his seat and evaporated into the crowd. Before long, a nearby clock tower chimed, signalling that noon on Thursday the 16th of September 1920 had come. Seconds later, the abandoned cart and the horse that drew it were blown apart in a storm of fire and concussion, from which erupted a blast that carpeted the street with bystanders, and, as far as two blocks away, derailed a trolley car, sending even more New Yorkers tumbling to the pavement. Along Wall Street itself, the windows of the Morgan Building, the Stock Exchange, the Sub-Treasury and the Assay Offices were blown out, covering those floored by the explosion with a layer of shattered glass. This, however, was the lesser form of shrapnel that the victims had to suffer. At the moment of detonation, thousands of shards of white-hot metal flew from the fireball. Lunch Hour Wall Street, the Washington Post reported, had been transformed from a scene of bustling activity to one of dreadful carnage the bomb leaving scenes that reminded witnesses recently returned from the trenches of the First World War of a battlefield. Thirty-eight people were killed, and hundreds more injured by the explosion, which, investigators later concluded, had been caused by a bomb comprised of a hundred pounds of nitroglycerin and nitrocellulose, stacked with an additional five hundred pounds of heavy metal shrapnel. It was a device designed, as the New York Times put it, to physically and mentally paralyse the heart of American capitalism. Unique among other terrorist spectaculars, the Wall Street bombing is still, 100 years later, a crime that remains officially unsolved. 
This unsatisfactory outcome of what, until Timothy McVeigh's attack on the Federal Building in Oklahoma City in 1995, was the deadliest terrorist bombing on American soil, was not arrived at for want of suspects. By 1920, the age of anarchist terrorism that had swept the transatlantic world since the 1880s was entering its denouement, albeit just as a new cause of political anxiety for the Western world, the threat of international Bolshevism was in its ascendancy. Caught between these two great enemies of the capitalist system, embodied in the bricks and mortar of Wall Street, it was only natural that the American public, police and the politicians who sought to make sense of the death and destruction succumbed to paranoia, assumptions and the intoxicating certainty of biases confirmed. Then, as now, terrorist tragedy became the handmaiden of a wave of conspiracy theories, bizarre goose chases, outbursts of defiant patriotism and, above all else, fear, all of which combined to create a fascinating fallout to one of modern history's most startling unsolved mysteries. Upon hearing the news, the mayor of New York, John Hyland, hoped that the explosion was the result of an accident, a broken gas main or a horrific car crash. Having attended the scene in person, however, Hyland issued a statement to the press, in which he signalled his acceptance of something more nefarious as the cause. Invoking the phrase infernal machine, an expression that had come to prominence during the anarchist bombing campaigns of prior decades, he offered $10,000 for information that might lead to a conviction. Standing amid the detritus of the blast site, less than an hour after it had been created, Hyland was clear that he was dealing with a crime in which violence had been the means for delivering a political message. Aside from the Morgan building appearing to be the bomber's primary target and the glaring fact that, amid the tumult of the explosion, no money was stolen from any of the banks, context informed Highland's judgment that radical politics lay behind the carnage. Since 1886, when a bomb had been tossed at police in Chicago during a labour strike, the United States had come to know and fear a new form of terrorism. Driven by the foreign anti-capitalist ideologies of anarchism and socialism, this form of terrorism was regarded by most Americans as posing a greater threat to the nation than the political violence of either the Fenians or the Ku Klux Klan, the preeminent American-based terrorist groups of the 1860s and 70s. The list of anarchist-inspired attacks carried out in the years before 1920 seemingly justified this fear. In 1892, Alexander Berkman, a Russian-born anarchist, attempted to assassinate the industrialist Henry Clay Frick, with the aim of inciting labourers across America to unleash revolution. Berkman failed in this grand design. In 1901, however, an anarchist, who had been inspired by both Berkman's attempt on Frick and the struggles of striking workers, took the life of President William McKinley with a pistol shot to the abdomen. Nine years after that assassination, 21 people were killed by a dynamite bomb that ripped apart the offices of the Los Angeles Times, the target of a plot hatched by members of the Iron Workers Union, who were aggrieved by the newspaper's coverage of the union's struggles against the American Bridge Company. Finally, a year before the Wall Street bombing, a New York-based group calling itself the American Anarchists posted as many as 30 parcel bombs to various congressmen, business leaders and law enforcement officials. America's enemies within were many, and their willingness to use violence to bring down the system of capital and labour that fired the nation's political and economic engines was evident. 
Faced with this existential threat manifesting on lunch hour Wall Street, shocked New Yorkers turned to comforting notions of patriotism. On the 17th of September, Constitution Day, the New York Times reported that, at the spot where enemies of America 24 hours before had slain and maimed, crowds, led by the sons of the American Revolution, gathered to sing the national anthem and hear a brigadier general call for those responsible to be killed like a snake. This bombast aside, the anxieties of a nation reeling from decades of radical unrest informed opinions of who the snakes were and under which rocks they might be found. In an interview with the Evening World, Rebecca Epstein, a stenographer who survived the blast, claimed that the explosive packed wagon was not only painted sort of reddish with a red flag on the back of it, but was driven by an ordinary labouring man who needed a shave. Parroting a notion common to this day of terrorists having to be foreigners, a chocolate seller informed the Washington Post that the wagon driver had a Scotch accent. Elsewhere in the paper, a hastily composed opinion piece of the 18th of September decried the bombing as the fruit of radicalism, grown from the polemics delivered to workers by the thoroughly unpatriotic Socialist Party of America. In Pittsburgh, a helpful citizen informed the police of a conversation he had shared on a train days after the attack with an itinerant Russian miner who was carrying dynamite and percussion caps on his person. The commuter claimed that the miner had warned, see what we did on Wall Street, next time it will be bigger and more terrible. Investigation confirmed that the miner, who was carrying the blasting materials as part of his trade, was neither a radical nor connected in any way to the bombing. The entire narrative of the dynamiting Russian was a construct of a frightened citizen's fevered imagination in which Bolsheviks, anarchists and foreigners blurred together. Tapping into this maelstrom of speculation, the New York Times summed up the murderer's row of suspects. A nondescript group of Reds who carried out the bombing as an act of defiance against the American people and the American government. Pacifists and cranks who sought revenge against Morgan for its funding of the recent war effort and five Italian anarchists who are said to have been connected with the bomb plots in the United States last year. Although prejudice ran through this lineup, the evidence from the history of anarchist violence in the US to the design of the bomb itself suggested that at least one finger of blame was pointing in the right direction. By speaking of five Italian anarchists, the New York Times was making reference to the group that had been behind the mail bombing campaign of 1919, the Gallianists. Although they numbered fewer than 50, these disciples of the outspoken Italian anarchist immigrant Luigi Galliani had been active since 1914 in recruiting, propagandizing and plotting from the factories of Milwaukee to the docks of New York. They were among the most energetic and well-organized of terrorist groups in the US at this time. They even published their own periodical, the Chronicle of Subversion, in which acts of terrorism against the state were encouraged, international finances railed against, and tales of strike-breaking acts of police brutality regaled in vengeful tones. Aside from their ideological predisposition, recent events had also given the Gallianists cause to take grand and violent action. In June 1919, Galliani was deported to Italy, along with leading figures of his group, on the grounds that they had incited violence against the American government and disseminated the dangerous knowledge of how to make bombs. In April 1920, a further blow was struck to the Gallianists when two of their number, 
Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were arrested on suspicion of murder following a botched robbery in Massachusetts in which two people were shot. These events were significant as circumstantial evidence of Gallianist guilt. The pattern of anarchists responding violently to the arrest and deportation of their brothers had been firmly established since the 1880s, leading to a spate of retaliatory bombings and assassinations in Spain, France and Italy. Given that, to the anarchist mind, the American forces of capital and power lay behind both the deportation of Galliani and the arrests of Sacco and Vanzetti, the theory of the Wall Street bombing being an act of revenge made sense. All that was needed now was hard evidence to tie the Gallianists to the dreadful deed. The spectacular and deadly nature of the attack meant that the response from law enforcement was instant, energetic and multifaceted. In addition to the New York Police Department and the fledgling, not yet federal, Bureau of Investigation, agents from insurance firms also descended on Wall Street within hours of the bombing, with the aim to assess what turned out to be a $2 million damage bill. The private detective who investigated the Los Angeles Times bombing, William J. Burns, also got involved, and the United States Secret Service was deployed to dig up connections between the little red wagon on Wall Street and the Bolsheviks, who, having seized power in Russia three years earlier, were now feared to be making a play for America by way of dynamite. Alongside the launching of these various investigations, security was beefed up across the financial district. Twenty-five patrolmen were deployed to guard the Morgan building alone. Mindful that an innovative new terrorist weapon, the car bomb, had been detonated, the police also banned vehicles stopping along Wall Street. Across Manhattan, Boston and Washington, D.C., patriotic vigilance committees formed to guard churches, political offices and banks, many of which received threats of further attacks from pranksters and cranks in the weeks following the bombing. The suggestion that these threats constituted a wider terrorist campaign, maybe directed from foreign shores, was feared by some in the New York Police Department, who sent for information from Italy on a bombing that occurred at the Genoa Stock Exchange the same day as the Wall Street outrage. The fact that no connections existed between events in New York and Genoa was not enough, however, to deter some police from the thought that the bombing was organised devilry, of a form far more threatening to the nation than the random anarchist atrocities of years past. Desperate to foil future attacks in this apparent plot, investigators turned to the most unlikely source, a tennis player and occasional clairvoyant called Edward Fisher, who had sent postcards to friends in the weeks leading up to the bombing, imploring them to stay away from Wall Street on the 16th of September. Apprehended on suspicion of being the plot's mastermind, Fisher claimed in his interrogation that he was not involved, but, as the New York Tribune reported, telekinetically tuned to the thought frequencies of the bombers, and so had known of the attack in advance. This was supported by the head of the American Institute for Psychical Research, who claimed that Fisher had shown many other instances of psychic ability, and as such needed to be treated as a vital part of the police investigation. The police thought differently. Having said that he had received knowledge of the bombing through the air, Fisher was committed to a mental asylum and forgotten. Although the media claimed that the Fisher episode showed the police to be baffled, other aspects of the investigation were more grounded. A day after the bombing, 
the Bureau of Investigation received information about a shipment of flyers produced by a group calling itself the American Anarchist Fighters that had been found by a postal worker not far from the bomb site. Written in a provocative shade of red, the flyers cautioned the reader, Remember, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners, or it will be sure death for all of you. This clue was the first that led the Bureau's director, William J. Flynn, to tie the Galleonists to the attack. Not that Flynn needed the suggestion. Having dismissed Bolsheviks, pacifists, or a random lunatic as potential culprits, Flynn, who remembered all too well the mail-bombing campaign of the previous year, settled on the Italian anarchists as the perpetrators even before news of the flyers reached him. Consequently, a bureau dragnet against known Italian anarchists was launched, with the aim of acquiring either a defiant confession or irrefutable evidence of the Galleonists' involvement. To Flynn's great frustration, neither materialised. Even more problematically, owing to America's laws on free speech, the calls for revolution prominent in the flyers and Galleonist literature could not be treated in a court of law as evidence of a plot to commit a violent act. Without a clear connection between words and deeds, Flynn's investigation into the Italians floundered. As Flynn continued his pursuit of the Galleonists, elsewhere other theories born of the anxious age blossomed. John Markle, an industrialist who was in the Morgan building when the bomb exploded, was among the first to opine to the New York Times that the explosion was caused by a Bolshevik. This idea was picked up by investigators predisposed to believe that an enemy even greater than anarchism threatened the United States, namely socialism, promoted by traitorous Americans in the service of the Soviet Union. William Burns was an early proponent of this Bolshevik connection theory and went on fanning the flames of the idea into the 1920s. A year after the still unsolved crime had been committed, Burns took over from Flynn as the Bureau's director, pledging to his subordinates and the public that he was the man to bring the terrorists to justice. Unlike his predecessor, Burns believed that his quarry were not Galleonists, but rather Soviet-backed socialists, whose attack on Wall Street was designed to fulfil the Bolsheviks' ambition of world revolution by destabilising the global economy. The scores of bureau raids on the residences of socialists in New York and Chicago that followed Burns' ascension to power seemingly confirmed his view, yielding a triumph that had eluded Flynn. In December 1921, it was reported that Burns had uncovered a plot in which $30,000 was paid to a team of American socialists by the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. to carry out the bombing. Even after this sensational story was proven to be a fiction sold to Burns by a scam informer, the notion of the Wall Street bombing being tied to Moscow lingered on. The Washington Post reported on the 13th of May 1923 that a Russian Red, Noah Lerner, a young man from Brooklyn who had spent a brief time living in a commune in Siberia, had been arrested on suspicion of being the bomber. Like those originally raided in 1921, Lerner was one of the many victims of the toxic environment caused by the burgeoning Red Scare mentality and the lingering humiliation and anger felt by law enforcement over the lack of a conviction. Desperation, however, did not equate to a police breakthrough. For want of evidence, the attempt to pin the murders on Lerner fell apart within days of his arrest. This prompted the Washington Post to report with weary humour that 
at the present rate, the number of radicals hauled in, questioned, revealed as the culprit, and then released, would be enough to justify a special edition of the census in 1930. The case lay dormant until, in 1944, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as it became known in 1935, reopened its inquiries, at a time when the Soviet Union was not on the list of America's enemies, as it had been in the 1920s. Retracing the points of Flynn's initial investigation, the Bureau now concluded that the Gallianists were most likely responsible, despite still having no firm evidence to secure a conviction. In the years since, the historian Paul Average used his connections to key anarchist figures to acquire information identifying the Gallianist culprit, a renowned bomb-maker and friend of the martyred Sacco and Vanzetti by the name of Mario Buda. Despite being in New York at the time of the bombing, this notorious dynamiter and anarchist was never questioned by anyone involved in the initial investigations. Instead, he slipped quietly out of the US shortly after the attack living out the rest of his life in his native Italy, as Flynn and Burns chased either other Gallianists or phantom Soviet agents. Reflecting on the Wall Street bombing 100 years after it occurred, the reactions of the press, the public and the police seem strikingly familiar to a 21st century mind. It is true that post-attack anxieties and panics prevailed as much then as they do in the wake of terrorist atrocities today. Beneath this similarity, however, there lies something more instructive. Whether it be the Washington Post's scepticism of Burns's Soviet theory, the New York Police Department's prompt dismissal of Fisher as an unreliable crank, or the fact that, for all the weight of circumstance, Flynn's pursuit of the Gallianists was thwarted by the evidence never being concrete enough to satisfy a court, it seems clear that, even amid a maelstrom of fear, the Wall Street bombing did not lead to a collapse of common sense, reason and the rule of law. It is that, perhaps above all else, that should draw the inquiring eye of posterity.